Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode six of Unknown Orbits, Alamagusa by Eric Frank Russell. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight we talk about the story Alamagusa, interesting little story, award-winning story published originally in the May 1955 volume of Astounding Magazine. Basically, a spaceship is notified that they are due for a top-to-bottom inspection by an admiral with a strict reputation. During the preparations for the inspection, they find an item listed in inventory, an off-dog, that not only can't be found, but no one seems to know what it is. In order to pass the inspection, they fabricate a replacement guessing at its nature. The ploy works, they pass the inspection, and until they are ordered home for an overhaul, fearing that the deception will be uncovered when they get back to dry dock or whatever the space equivalent of dry dock is, they report back that the item was destroyed, which leads to a hilarious series of events, which ultimately unveils the true nature of the missing item. So this was, uh, as I said, from Eric Frank Russell. It was an award-winning story. It was actually the first short story to ever win the Hugo Award for 1955. Personally, I'm kind of shocked that this was a Hugo Award-winning story, because to me, this is a gimmick story. It's not really particularly science fiction, except for the fact that it's set on a spaceship. It could easily have been slightly rewritten and published in a military fiction magazine. It, it just, to me, was marginally science fiction. There was nothing about the off dog that had anything to do with science fiction. And I was personally kind of shocked that it won the, the first Hugo Award ever. Now, John W. Campbell of Astounding Magazine called him his favorite writer. So that might have had something to do with it. At this point in his career, Russell had published quite a bit of fiction. He had started out, I believe, in 1939 in Astounding Magazine. So he was a well-read, well-considered author at the time. Interestingly, even though he was an English writer, he followed the typical template of the 1930s era second-generation science fiction writer, people like Isaac Asimov writers who had a technical background. In his case, he came from a military family. He had a variety of technical jobs after graduating college with a technical degree. During World War II, he served in a uh, advanced technical division in the Air Army Air Corps for England. Uh, and he also, like many of his contemporaries, emerged from fandom. He was actively involved in fandom in England, early science fiction fandom. So he was very much a prototypical writer of his era and was widely regarded by a lot of other authors 
So that maybe that explains the reason why it won the Hugo. What was your reaction to the story? What, how, what, are, what are your feelings about it? Well, I've known about the story for a number of years, and I've always liked it. The uh, ending is fairly basic, so I think the reason that I liked the story was just just the mood of it. It's very much in the mode of like a World War II Navy comedy movie. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Service comedy is what they used to call those. And of course, you had a lot of science fiction authors who had military experience. So when they come out and start writing in the late 40s and 50s, obviously they start bringing a lot of their knowledge of the military into their stories. I didn't enjoy it as much as you did. I didn't dislike it or anything. I just thought it was was not really science fiction. But we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion about this story and about Mr. Russell and his propensity for, let's just say, being rather derivative in a lot of his work. Can we say borrowing? Well, you could you could call it that. I think that's too gentle of a word, perhaps. But let's start out with Alamagusa. It was, in fact, a version of a story that had been told numerous times in the previous 20 years, and quite likely before that. Uh, in, in researching for this podcast, I discovered three published versions of this same story, not word for word. It, w- it was not set on a spaceship, but it was basically the same story. I'll give you the example of the first one. So there was a story called the shove wood. That's the name of the item, the shove wood. That story was published in 1938 by the Patea Mail, a New Zealand newspaper, did not have a author attributed to it. It was written in a clearly fictional style. It had very exaggerated slang and naval dialogue in it. It was about a ship that underwent a an inspection, just like in Alamagusa. And just like in Alamagusa, they manufacture a substitute. And when the deception is uncovered, it leads to the solving of the mystery of finding out what a shove wood was. And in this case, shove wood stood for shovel comma wood so that's the basic gimmick of the story then there was the same year 1938 a collection actually i believe this was first published in a magazine air fiction magazine but it was uh, published for sure in a anthology by anthony armstrong and that story was entitled captain bayonet and the spa gas. And I honestly don't remember what spa gas stood for, but it was, again, a fairly innocuous item that, you know, after, you know, all the subterfuge of trying to, you know, fool the inspector, they, at the end of the story, it's uncovered what a spa gas actually is. Could very well have been spare gas. I think so. I'm not 100% sure, but... There was another version published in 1945 in an anthology, Roll on My Twelve, Short Stories of the Royal Navy. And again, I believe that was the old Shovewood again. In that one, they didn't directly copy the story from 1938, but it was almost identical in terms of structure and the plot. 
So there were at least three published versions of this particular gimmick story by three different authors within 20 years prior to Alamagusa. And, you know, if you read these stories, they're very different in style. The structure is virtually identical, but the writing is, the characters are very different. The writing style is very different. So it is not a case where Russell was plagiarizing any of these stories. But I find it hard to believe that somebody who was in the military and who probably had a lot of free time on his hands during the war didn't run across one of these, at least the last two stories, somewhere along the line where he read it, remembered the story, and then 10 years later regurgitated as Alamagusa. It's also likely, and I was not able to confirm this, that all of these stories were a retelling of a much older tall tale or urban legend or perhaps a, a story written during the Edwardian era that's lost to time. So it was very definitely something that was a very derivative story that to some degree was copied from these other stories. He's not a plagiarist, but it certainly was likely very, very directly derivative. Personally, I think it's forgivable. It's a basic joke along the lines of Henway, Duck Go, or Up Dog, that kind of thing. And it is, as you said, kind of this running gag in the public domain. And he takes that gag and he writes a full story around it. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it was 100% creative. Imagine you wrote a story about Paul Bunyan. You could easily take one of the many Paul Bunyan myths and write a story around it. And, and it's your writing. It's your structure. It's just borrowing the... Uh, the tall tale. The, yeah, just borrowing the tall tale and casting it in a, in a new form, a new story, which is what I think he did. So I don't know. I consider it all right. I mean, I, I wouldn't have uh, respect for someone who built an entire career doing that. But as a source, you should mention that. (laughs) Damn it. I shouldn't have mentioned that. (laughs) Um. So I will give him credit. I thought that the twist ending, which was different than any of the other stories, was somewhat clever. And I don't want to give it away for anybody who hasn't read it. I thought that was a pretty nice piece of writing. So, uh, you know, I'll give him a good deal of credit for that. But this is not happening in a vacuum with Mr. Russell. He had a long history of writing material that was, in some cases, derivative, in some cases, a little bit more, perhaps, than just derivative. The very first thing that he was, that he published that was of note was the novel Sinister Barrier. When that came out, Some people pointed to a a story published just a little while before that by Edmund Hamilton called The Earth Owners, and there were some very clear similarities between the two stories, although Mr. Hamilton actually was friends later with, with Mr. Russell, so I don't think that if he would flat out plagiarize the story, 
that Mr. Hamilton would have thought kindly of that. But there were people that made charges that it was very similar to, to the earth owners. So there was that. Again, I would say that was borrowing a, a concept. I did look into the Hamilton story and it didn't have a proper ending. The incident just ended. Other aliens came along to take care of the aliens that were harming them in the Hamilton story. In mm. the Russell story, humans find a way of killing the aliens. Which is a better, a better ending, even though I'm not familiar with the story, but that sounds like a better ending to me. And that's the thing. The ending of Alamagusa, of all of those other three stories that I read, Alamagusa had the best ending. You know, so there's, there's something to be said for him taking some, someone else's idea, putting a fresh spin on it, maybe writing a better version of it. But he did that a lot. I definitely don't think that Eric Frank Russell was the sort of writer who would come up with brilliant ideas on his own and write them down. I think, I think he was, and he was fairly proficient. He had an active career for quite a long time. And as I said, he was John W. Campbell's favorite writer, and other writers felt pretty respectful of him as well. So I think that was just his thing, that, that he took other people's ideas, put a different spin on it, maybe wrote it better, and did that a lot. So is that plagiarism? No, but, you know. Well, since you put a kinder spin on it, I can accept that more. Also, I was thinking, well, you know, there's, there's creativity and then there's the ability to write and you don't get a balance between the two in every author. Take Isaac Asimov, for instance. He had some good ideas. His writing was very basic workmanlike writing. It's not a particular joy to read. Yeah, yeah, I I would totally agree with that. I think that's a very good summation of Isaac Asimov. Heinlein had brilliant ideas, and he was a competent author. You know, but if you wrote down the ten best science fiction stylists, the ten best pure writers, I don't know if you put Heinlein on that list. But he he had brilliant ideas, really imaginative ideas that were original. So, you know, maybe. In an era when someone could support themselves by writing science fiction for a living, I think there's, there's room for true imaginative geniuses and workmanlike writers who had the ability to find a particular way of doing things that produced enjoyable fiction that people liked to read and was able to do it in enough of a volume where he could have a, a, a long and consistent career. And doing the research for it, I just ran into a lot of people who praised Russell as, as, a, as a very fine writer. And I actually put a anthology of his on my uh, shopping list. And sometime in the near future, I'm going to go ahead and buy that and uh, dig a little deeper into Eric Frank Russell. Sinister Barrier was another one of my favorites. It was the third or fourth galaxy novel, which you may not be familiar with and maybe a topic of the future. Galaxy Magazine decided to print a series of novels in the same format as their magazine. It saved money and they already had the distribution channels. Uh, Sinister Barrier was picked as one of the very earliest ones, like third or fourth. Looking at this story, we came up with a category 
of a type of science fiction story that I think we've got time to do a little brief discussion of. And just to give a look ahead, I think one of the things we're going to do in this podcast as we go is start gathering types of science fiction stories, because there are definitely quite a few basic types of stories that were done over and over and over again, definitely during the golden period of science fiction. And I think we're going to try to tackle each one of them from time to time and explain what was the utility of that particular type of story for a writer. If you came up with an idea, how could you channel that through one of these forms of stories, story types, and easily follow the formula and produce a very readable story? So in this case, we're talking about, and I'm going to read a quote here from Mike Ashley in the book Transformations, Volume 2. The kind of small niggling problem that would arise in space, and because of the context, might become life-threatening. It was typical of many stories appearing in British magazines. So the small problem type of story is basically a minor accident or a minor repair mushrooms into a problem of epic proportions where the spaceship is threatened, the world is threatened, all kinds of terrible consequences flow out of this very small, minor problem. So it's maybe to some degree a subset of the problem-solving story. I think Alamagusa definitely fits into this category because it's a, one item on an inventory sheet that winds up becoming a major scandal within the Space Navy. And I think you've got a couple of other examples of uh, stories that fit this pattern. Yes, I'm immediately put in mind of a story called Tiger by the Tail by Alan E. Norse. Briefly, and I kind of have to give away the ending for, for this because the ending is the consequence. In a department store, a manager sees a woman putting things into her purse. And after a while, he realizes she's not only putting just aluminum items in her purse, but impossibly large items managed to fit in there as well. So they get the uh, law security people to take her into an office and they kind of do a hand wave like she's hypnotized or something because the whole story is about the purse where there's this ring in the bottom of the purse that things go in like to another dimension or something. And what they do in exploring this problem is they end up taking a steel rod, like a thick. Okay. It's, a, it's like, like a, a steel, thick... steel rod coated in aluminum because whatever's on the other side of this um, hole in the purse in another dimension, uh, they, they need aluminum for some reason. So the, the inner rod is like chromium steel, really tough stuff. And they shove it down the, the, uh, the hole, and it gets rejected. It comes back up. So they're able to take the two ends of this and attach it to a crane and start pulling and pulling and pulling. Then it starts pulling back, and they realize that they're stuck because they have tons and tons of force on this item, and they, they can't even cut through it because there's too much force involved. And that's where the story ends, where they're sitting there with the tiger by the tail and not knowing how to let go. Right. It's, it's a 
fine little story. It's a pretty weird premise. The purse with a black hole in it. I mean, it's a weird premise. You wonder how the author came to that idea. I mean, most things you can look at and say, oh, he probably heard this or thought that and then came up with the story. But this one, I wouldn't want to guess how he came to it originally. I can tell you exactly how he came to it. I want to hear. Um, I have been with some women over the years who had enormous purses. And it was amazing the sort of things that were in that purse. You know, it's like, oh, I cut my finger. Oh, I, I got a Band-Aid. She pulls a Band-Aid out of the purse. It's like, oh, man, I wish I had a paper clip. Wait a minute. I have a paper clip. She pulls a paper clip out of the purse. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I had a safety pin. She reaches and she's got a safety pin in the purse. I don't know if it's a thing anymore, but at one point having a gigantic purse filled with every conceivable, it's almost like a bug out bag. You know, it's so full of stuff. I'm kind of thinking that he had his wife had one of those giant purses and he was taking her out to dinner one night or something. And she pulled something out of his purse and he, he said, Jesus, is there, is there a bottom to that purse? And that's when the light went out, uh, went on in his head. And that's where the story got its start. That's my educated guess. You'd start out with saying everything can go into this purse and then say, why? Right. Aliens. Then, then what do we do with it? How do we end it? Right. So, I mean, it, it's a well-constructed story, although, of, like I said, a weird premise. And any, any other ones in the category that you can think of? Well, there's The Water Eater by, I think it's Winston Marks, sometimes Win Marks. Kind of interesting. He lived in Wisconsin. And he, does, and, uh, he mentions Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is part of the story. His wife is cooking. So there is a roasting pan with meat juices in it, and he's cleaning up, and he spills some oil, and then he decides to add some other common household chemicals to make soap. And in the end, he makes a thing. Another potential category for this would be mysterious thing with unknown properties. Right. In this case, it's a gel that absorbs water, any water, all water. And it grows. Yes. It expands uh, and duplicates. Should I give it away? Yeah, give it away. So in the end, he decides, okay, I've had enough with this stuff. I'm just going to get rid of it. And he shoves it down the sink, pours a bunch of water after it, washes it out. And then the next day he realizes, well, the sewer empties out into Lake Michigan. And this thing has shown no hesitation in absorbing all the water you can give it. And then it ends on that note of, you know, I, I really don't want to go look at the lake because <laughs> I might have done something to it. So I'm just going to say this guy's profession is a beer truck driver. He delivers beer and he lives on Lake Michigan. I'm just going to assume that we're talking about Milwaukee here. So a, a science fiction story set in Milwaukee. All right, right there. It's, it's, it's tops in my book. But the thing that I was struck by, the writer had to have been a chemical engineer or had some kind of a chemical background because he puts an awful lot of detail and explanation into this soap that he makes with all these different chemicals and explains the process of how these different chemicals combine and, you know, work with one another. And it was like, here was this sort of every man sort of story that was almost like a fable that suddenly veered off into 
a very hard science fiction for several paragraphs. So that was a little weird. But again, it is a classic example of a small problem. He was trying to clean up a mess in the kitchen, and he may have destroyed Lake Michigan in the process. You know, commenting on that, I think we all take our personal experiences and put them in the writing. And sometimes they take a front seat because it's fun to take something you really know about and write about it. I wrote a story once about, it was a science fiction story that involved time travel, but the large part of it was on doing typesetting and layout for a newspaper. I remember that story. I loved that story. That was not a bad story. In my case, it, my current novel that I'm writing, working on, The Nowhere Navy, um, does bring my Navy experiences into the story. But I'm very aware of the fact that I don't want that to become too dominant of a strain in the story. So I'm bringing in elements of it and a basic setting, and then I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to, to overdo it. But that's, it's a lot easier to do that in a novel than it is in a short story. And, you know, I, I can see where he had this, you know, he started thinking about like this magical soap. And maybe he, in his spare time, he tried to make the perfect soap, who knows. So I can see where he wanted, really wanted to get that into the story. And it it's kind of hard to do that without, you know, stopping to spend some time talking about the process. You know, I think at the format of a short story versus a novel, you're more likely to notice a big info dump, a technical info dump in a short story than you, you might in a novel, or you might be more tolerant of it in a novel. Especially in those days, uh, they were paid by the word. So if you had a little bit of fun oh, adding. Very good point. Yeah. That's one thing that, that you'll notice as you read classic golden age science fiction is that you will notice info dumps, a whole page discussing how the hyperdrive works. Like I said, I don't know how much of that is a very technical nerdy guy really wanting to get that stuff out there, you know, to show how smart he is or to speak to some obsession of his versus, like you said, pure mercenary intent to boost his word count and get paid a little bit more. That's a good point. I know definitely more than one author started typing on rolls of paper so that they could just spill out words faster. Yeah. On the Road by Jack Kerouac, most of it was written that way. One continuous roll of paper. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was not unheard of. Do you recall the Outer Limits episode? It came from the woodwork? Oh, that's one of my, fa- it might be my favorite episode of the Outer Limits. But it does start out well, as it does, a tiny it does little physic- thing. It does. It does. It, it literally is a, a tiny little thing that turns into something much bigger and terrible. So I don't know if I have any more to add to that. Do you have any other stories or any other points you wanted to make about small into big problems? I could mention The Leech by Robert Sheckley. It is about a small seed in interstellar space that lands on Earth and has the ability to convert matter into energy and then that energy into its own mass. So it will eat anything and keep on growing endlessly. And the whole story is how do you deal with with that situation? You can't attack it in any way. Yeah, I don't know if that would fit because to me, a small problem into a big problem is a problem solving story 
that in that begins with someone having a a small little problem or a small little issue that they try to address technically and something goes wrong so you would say that human interaction causing the problem to become yes. worse all three of the stories we talked about tonight you had human intervention cause the problem that's a really good way to way to define this category so i like that because then when we get around to talking about problem solving stories we can we can talk about this as being a subcategory of that yeah so anyway well that's it for episode six please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction i'm patrick baird and i'm steve reitzy keep watching the stars that's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.